uh, do you guys want to talk about this uh, MR live show thing? Yeah, are we starting? Are we starting the show? Yeah, we're starting. Uh, Our guests will come in any moment now, uh, but yeah, welcome to the Antifada. We're on Rest is Best. I'm A.P. Andy. I'm Jamie Peck. And I'm Sean KB. Did you do that little intro for me right now? Because you could tell I'm tired. So, I mean, no, uh, what? I'm not tired. I feel great. Why Why? Why would <laughs> you be tired uh, right now? What'd you do today? Uh, Jamie passed out during the MR live show. And <laughs> now there's a body double Jamie here. <laughs> she hallucinated mm-hmm. some of her dead comrades. Uh, I saw it. Oh, no. Uh, Muhammad yeah, Atta. I, I definitely... <laughs> don't want to go home to my floor mattress right now and cuddle with the cats. It's definitely You're still not on the, floor. the first thing on We are still on, my mind. on the fucking floor. Oh, is We're Alex gonna... here? I think Alex uh, is here. Should we let him in? No, let's just... know head knock. Alex Gendler. Uh, yeah, our guest ah. is just a little bit late today. Because, Alex, uh, uh, it was his... Well, we'll let him tell you. Yeah, it was his we'll birthday. I think he tied one on. We better get him a hair of the dog. <laughs> uh, Alex Gendler just walked into the room and said, I don't even want to fucking look at beer right now. So I guess the hair of the dog is not for him today. We don't even say the B word. We will not say the B word. And he's Russian, folks. Yeah, Are I know. You Ukrainian? Am I messing that up? Oh, it's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> Things in Russia are often complicated. And in Ukraine, too. You don't know who's a little green man. You don't know... Uh, in Where? Soviet Russia, hangover has you. <laughs> Did I do that right? Yeah, no, Yakov Shmirnov, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I am a little bit tired right now because... I just did a live show with the Majority Report at with the Bell Sam House. With Sam Cedar. With Sam Cedar and others who shall not be named. Um, no, it was a great, it was a great experience. Uh, I was really nervous at first. And then uh, we started doing it, and it flowed pretty well. And I remembered that I do this every day. So that was pretty cool. It was cool to meet a lot of the uh, listeners, a lot of the fans. Was your nervousness because even though you appear four times a week in front of like 4,000 people live, that you don't have to see any of their faces? And this time you actually had to be in an audience? Yeah, that's part of it. Did you try just, you know, that imagining the audience naked trick? She didn't have to imagine. There were some super fans there who let it all hang out. You know, Sam Cedar. Hog get, or GTFO. Yeah. <laughs> Sam That's Cedar what I can say. get the clothes off any man or woman. It's true. That sexy beast. He just has to start reading those social security reports yeah, I and know, the, I know. the bras. It's like a Motley Crue concert or something. They L- just start flying. Listen, like the, the funny uh, anti-Semitic, quasi anti-Semitic jokes about Sam Cedar. I have taken on a different tinge since we watched the uh, Trotsky show, which we'll talk Mm. about later. I'm not sure that I'm cool with like jokey, funny um, anti-Semitism anymore after seeing what, uh, I don't know, what real anti-Semitism looks like. I'll let Michael Brooks know. Yeah. I'm sure that he will take that criticism into account going forward when he's deciding what kind of funny voices to do on the show. Alex, how come uh, Alex Gendler? How come you didn't make it to the live show at uh, 2.30 today in uh, Gowanus? Um, I actually died last night. <laughs> so um, this is like my zombie form wow. that's recording with you guys. Um, yeah, the funeral is going to be um, <laughs> probably at, at Tip Top Bar. Oh, uh, yeah. perfect. Yeah. Go Your back favorite. from where you came. Um, Scene of the crime. I like how last night like, you were so realistic about um, your capabilities on recording day. That you're like, yeah, I'm going to be in bad shape. I'm going to get to you guys. I'll, I'll hit you up as soon as I can, like, 
put fingers to screen. Well, you, no, you knew what he you were asked doing. me what time we were recording, and I said five thirty, and he was like, "Oh, I'll probably be awake by then." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was a close call, but um, yeah. Was it a good birthday? I know um, oh. you did not manage to plan a revolution for the same day as a birthday gift to yourself, like Trotsky did, and we'll get into that in a minute. But was it good? Uh, yeah, yeah, and thank thank you guys for coming. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and you know, thanks to any of my listeners who also uh, your, your <laughs> listeners. I like that you're taking control already, just yeah. like Trotsky, yeah. Yeah. people yeah. who only listen to Antifada for Alex. <laughs> <laughs> hey, look, there's probably a decent <laughs> amount of people. We had fun. Uh, Tip Top uh, is a cool little bar in Bed Stuy. Um, you didn't seem that drunk when uh, I got there. Yeah, you guys but, left uh, before it got really uh, bad. You yeah. missed him eating a giant pickle. That was pretty funny. He, he ate a giant pickle. He, he deep throated that pickle. Is that, is that anti-Russian sentiment right there? What is that? <laughs> yeah, I mean, no, it's, he really, that really happened. Uh, yeah, it's it's tradition. Um, yeah, tradition, tradition. You know how much we love tradition. On, uh, the birthday yeah. boy deep throats a pickle. Wow, you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Were there any celebs at your party? Uh, you mean like uh, the famous hosts of the Antifada? <laughs> yeah, two, two, of, two of three Antifadas. Yeah, any other Not podcast bad. celebs? Uh, there might have been a couple of uh, other left uh, figures. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a man from a charnel house, a friend of the show, oh, and yes. former uh, guest Ross Wolf was there. Yeah, Ross. Uh, Ross did. Uh, Ross did make an appearance. As did. Uh, I believe a certain baffler contributor. Ah, the right. baffler contributor. I wasn't there. <laughs> <laughs> have you written for the baffler? I have. Wow, wow. Multiple pieces. See, Andy, we don't we can't even keep up with your uh, prolif- prolific uh, writing these days. Apparently, you're writing critiques of like the Libertarian Socialist Caucus DSA program. And yeah, we just... need to subscribe to Andy's newsletter that we just <laughs> found out he has. <laughs> but my pitches to current affairs went uh, unresponded to, unfortunately. Nathan you know what? J. Robinson, they just hit me up. Uh, they just slid into my DMs because they oh, want to yeah. send us a paper copy of their magazine. Oh. So I will uh, let great. them know that you are wanting to talk to them. This is a fucking cooperative. It's not like Andy is like the producer of this thing. There's no fucking reason why Nathan J. Robinson can't talk to Andy directly, just like any other Antifada. We don't need, he doesn't need to slide into Jamie's DMs in order to get in touch with Andy. He should respond promptly to Andy's pitches. Nathan and, uh, isn't the issue here, but... Uh, uh, right, I'm sure uh, he's doing his best. We love you, Current Nathan, Affairs. You're doing yes, great. Doing great. Come on the show sometime. It'll be really uh, fun. But before I'm we, joking. Nathan J. Robinson, you're good people. Before we end this uh, section of low-key banter... This isn't even a section. Key banter, just um, Yeah. <laughs> no, I just want to give a shout-out to, <laughs> yeah. to all the listeners who came out to the show today, especially... The ones that told me that they also like the Antifada. Yes. Um, primarily them. It was really cool to meet some of you guys and uh, your support means a lot. And I think judging from the responses that we got just anecdotally, it would probably make sense for us to do a live show as well. I do believe so. We met um, Tom from Yakubia. And uh, we met um, a guy named Bo and his partner, Christy, I think. I think she came from Chicago just to see the MR live show. So 
you know, with the people that we teacher spoke Lauren. to. Yeah, Teacher Lauren. Shout out. Uh, the people that we spoke to, it was kind of an informal poll, and we asked them if we should do a live show. And Bo's partner said she would fly from Chicago, but it would be oh, better yeah. if we came there. So, mm. you know, maybe. Yeah, I was like, we'll just let us know when you're going to be in town, and we'll plan it around that. Don't fly. <laughs> no, no Andy's Fado World Tour. <laughs> but, you know, we do have a, uh, a hatchback two-door Hyundai uh, Elantra that could hit the road and maybe we can make it to Detroit before it broke down. <laughs> we'll see. It'll be a fun game. Wouldn't see. that be great to go on tour? Uh, yeah. Maybe. Alex, you could you could come too if you want. Yeah, can we all fit in the in the Hyundai? Yeah, you yeah. could go on the roof. <laughs> Mitt, Mitt like Mitt Romney's okay. dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could be our road our road dog. You're our road dog. <laughs> your dick on hard for fucking your road dog. That's some nineties shit, bringing it back. Indeed. But yeah, shout out to um Everybody that made the MR live thing. Did we get some audio from H. John Benjamin? Oh, we did. We didn't get it for the Antifada, but if any of my friends are listening, they will find this very funny. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which I don't think is actually going to happen because probably none of my friends listen to the show. Maybe Nero. Nero does. No, Nero's a part of the show. I think our other friends might have listened to the ones that Nero was on. Yeah. But, maybe Aaron, um, maybe Aaron's uh, appearances too. Yeah, Carmen doesn't listen. <laughs> <laughs> Don't uh, say the a word. <laughs> oh man, problematic fave. Uh, perhaps, <laughs> perhaps he does. He's an intellectually curious guy. But um, he wanted to come on the show at one point. That would have been interesting. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, this is a stupid inside joke that I will save for a bonus to explain to people because it's not very political and it's kind of weird and dumb. But uh, anyway, way to sell it. Go ahead. If anyone wants to hear John Benjamin say an inside joke that's funny to me and about ten other people, here you go. It's Betty by time. Dumb, dumb. (laughs) (laughs) No, actually, it's better than an inside joke. It's a really good story behind it. Can you tell the story? It's a sex slave story. He sold it. I I don't know what it is, but he sold it. Yeah, I I appreciate that. That That guy really. He's got a great voice. He should do something with that. But I just think I want to give a shout to myself here for a minute because I realized that he had his coat on and he was about to go. And I could ask him probably I could probably get him to take one request before it became like really onerous and annoying. You knew you shouldn't have done it. I thought about I thought about making it an Antifada related request. But I was like, no, you know what? I'm going to think about the collective here. Oh, and the other collective of your friends. And I know that this will show. make my friends very fucking happy. What about so, our listeners and Andy and I? You, you guys are my think... friends, too. Uh, all right, all right. But like, it's I, I guess I really showed my true colors there, I didn't I? Just showed your loyalties. That's fine. Because like, you know, the Antifada... I guess I didn't really think about you guys. I was like, well, I could do something that only benefits me (laughs) or I could do something that benefits, you know, like 10 dum-dums that I am friends with. Alex has uh, a look on his face like, what did I get myself into today? It is is a good story. We'll save it for the bonus. We'll save it for the bonus. Save it for the bonus. It involves a a sex slave and um, Craigslist advertisements and um, hilarity. Yeah, I think I've done enough for you guys, okay? I had to give one to the dum-dums. Half of those getting cut anyway. Speaking of bonuses (laughs) and friends, (laughs) speaking of bonuses and friends and benefits, uh, we got the new stickers in. Yes. Hell yeah. Huge. They're like huge. They're too big now. (laughs) So if you want a bunch of small stickers and one big sticker, uh, 
Alex has a small sticker and he, does? he looks ashamed. <laughs> yeah, what the hell? I got gypped. <laughs> it's not the size that matters. Alex. Oh my god, Alex, what the fuck? <laughs> I like it's though we did the Tucker Carlson episode. <laughs> oh right, we're not. Oh right, yeah. We we gave it's, you this sticker the last night. It's already on your laptop. I love that. Of the folks. So yeah, stickers. If you want some, uh, go to our Patreon. Sign up at the five dollar level. We'll send you a uh, pack with a bunch of stickers. If you sign up at the ten dollar level, we'll give you even more stickers, yeah. and you'll get the bonus content, including uh, that story about the sex slave <laughs> and whatever. It is uh, a pretty good story. It's like things. a modern love, I think. Yeah, it is modern love. Yeah, I can't believe we never told that story before. So yeah, like Andy said, the new stickers are out. They're fucking beautiful. We saw some uh, fans at the live show, and they said that Andy had already sent them stickers. So uh, they're already great. going out in the mail, and people are already getting them. And uh, yeah, good stuff. And if any of those people were also attendees at me and Sean's wedding, uh, consider that your thank you card as well. <laughs> We're such scumbags. We're the worst people. We're bad. Why are we so bad? Oh, we suck at life. You know, we oh. can't be good at everything, okay? Yeah, I know. Well, I think earlier we mentioned, or that might get cut, but let's just, there was some mention of sleeping on a floor. Alex, mm. did we tell you about this yesterday? The apartment thing, issues we've been having? Oh, yeah. Right. Your leaky. Uh, yeah. Yeah. How's that going? It was your birthday and we burdened you with our own problems. We're assholes. Um, it's okay because I don't remember any of it. Um, <laughs> you remembered it enough to know that our, right, uh, ceiling, our ceiling leaks. So um, there was an announcement that we actually made on a certain um, website called Twitter.com. Uh, about our rent strike. And um, we thought that we'd follow up for the people that were, you know, uh, rooting for us at that point in time and to declare that Jamie and I fucking won. We won. Rent strike. Nice. Antifada won. Landlord zero. (laughs) Direct action uh, gets the goods, folks. It sure as fuck does. You want to just, you know, bullet point that for everyone, babe, uh, how we did it and uh, what happened? Yeah. So we've been paying rent on this place since December the 15th. Because that's when they were renting the apartment for, and they would not move it to we January didn't even 1st. Want, yeah, we wanted January 1st. But uh, luckily, we had not made arrangements to move on the 15th. We made arrangements to move out of our house by the end of the month. So we go on the 15th to start bringing some of our stuff there, and we see kind of a gash in the ceiling of the bedroom. that it looks like vulva-ish. it's got some uh, water Dash. damage yeah. or something. Yeah, and then... Uh, I emailed them. I was like, oh, hey, what's up with that? And they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, no. They told us at the lease signing, like December 10th. They're like, we're aware of the leak and we're fixing it. So I emailed them again when I saw it. I was like, just making sure you guys are going to fix that. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. The next two weeks, we're moving our things in. We see it get worse and worse. Finally, it, rains. it drips There's so actually... much. The paint falls, you know, like makes that bubble and the paint oh, yeah. fall out. Falls and down. Shit There's all a over leak. The floor. Uh, we come to move into our new bedroom and there's just like a plastic tarp all on the floor. And the floor is covered bucket. in plaster yeah. and there's a bucket to catch these drips of dirty water. And we're like, yo, what the fuck? So we're paying so, almost $2,000 a month to stay in this fucking place and we can't even like set up our bed. Essentially, yeah. So this. we figured because they kept saying they were going to fix it. They were going to fix it. So we gave like a grace period. We yeah, were like, we all right, good we're going to buy an extra week in our old apartment, which luckily our old landlord was letting us do and wait until they fix it. But uh, the first week of January is almost over. And we're like, you know what? 
We're tired of fucking moving. Tired of We're it. tired of paying rent on our on two places. Yep. Let's just move ourselves. We'll sleep on a mattress on the floor of the living room. A Casper mattress with Brooklyn and sheets with fucking cardboard on the windows. It was like we said before, a fancy meth lab. Yeah, yeah. I don't want you to think we're too fancy, though. Like, we did get this Casper used That's for true. $250. It was only lightly stained. And you know what? It came from <laughs> acclaimed independent producer ben greenberg so yeah. whatever like juices are on there are probably like <laughs> genius juice if they just like soak into oh, our minds you know nice. i'm gonna go home and play some really uh really cool ambient guitar music and i'm gonna get better at Fortnite. so get anyway rise up. uh we we emailed the landlord we told them that we were not gonna pay we weren't going to owe any rent until they fixed the leak and our apartment was fully habitable. And also that we wanted a refund, probably in the form of a credit towards future rent on the time that we had paid for, during which it was uninhabitable. And they hit us back and agreed to pretty much all of our demands and sent someone to start fixing it the next day. The, so, the woman who lives upstairs had been there for five or six years and she said that this leak problem has been there since she moved in. And I'm not saying we're any better than anybody else, but like we went the direct action route and we basically said like we don't want to put the rent in escrow and like bring the city into this and turn this into like a housing law thing. But like we showed them that like we were going to stand up and we weren't going to pay rent on it. And lo and behold, within 24 hours after five, six, seven years of this leaky roof, some guys arrived with a chipping hammer and some waterproofing and they started banging away at it. Yeah, well, we'll see. Because uh, she also said that the landlord, they, they've had a few different landlords in that time period, and they always do like a cheap, shitty job fixing it, and then it comes back again. Well, just to finish this whole thing out is, you know, ours was a little action. You know, one apartment in an eight-unit building in New York City. Uh, uh, the management company that uh, runs our building uh, has thousands and thousands of units in this city. So it's one thing to win this small little battle, right? But I think this has given both Jamie and I the the sense that, like, we can jump in now because we don't have a little landlord anymore who owns one building. There's thousands of units that these mm -hmm. folks own, and we already have aggrieved tenants in our building. So oh, yeah. we're big time. Big time aggrieved. So we are going to take this ball, and we're going to run with it and not just try to organize our building into a tenant union, but try to find out all of this management company's buildings and try to, you know, do something to – you know, actually give back to the generations of people who fought so hard so that we could have strong renters laws in New York City, working class people who fought and, uh, you know, won these yeah. rights for us. So and let's uh, use them. tenant organizing is actually a priority in my branch of the DSA right now. So uh, actually, if nothing else, I should be setting a good example for all of the rank and file DSA members to show that it is, in fact, possible and we should all be organizing our buildings. Yeah. In the Bay Area, they, they have this interesting initiative to organize tenants not by building but by uh, owner. So they, they picked out like a few really egregious slumlords and just tried to find – just try to contact tenants in the buildings that these slumlords owned. I'm not sure how it went, but it was an interesting strategy. Was it a solidarity network? Was uh, it Tank? It was Tank, yeah. Oh. What's tank? Uh, tenants Action Network Coalition. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but, but it was a was it a tenants uh, union or was it more of a solidarity network? Because remember, like, uh, uh, what was the Seattle Solidarity Network? It was, was like maybe like a mix of the two. I don't know. Because we because we tried to start one of those in the city like eight nine years ago. Dave was involved and we kind of got it off the ground, but it was a lot of flaky anarchists and. We did go after a few. Not landlords. all anarchists. Yeah, right? uh, we we did confront some landlords about it and get some wins, but um, the energy just wasn't there. So I think that something 
something more institutional and more organized needs to exist, well, like that tank thing. Well, like, I mean, the best tenant unions in New York are organized by Acorn, like because you get a salary for doing that. You need sure. to. It's a full time job. Yeah. So this is. is a big well, challenge. I believe this is the East Bay Communist Caucus of the DSA that's primarily working on this project. So cool. Shout out to them. People are always saying we need to do more episodes on like the nuts and bolts of organizing. And I think sometimes when I listen to stuff like that, I'm like, mm, this could be more entertaining. But I, I would like to get some of that in there. So it's, maybe we'll talk to some of those folks. Yeah, sometime. It's, it's possible, too, that in the future we could kind of bracket off some episodes to be more like, you know, nuts and bolts organizing type stuff, uh, workers toolkits and that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, we can but... make it a patron bonus and then people can pay us to learn how to be <laughs> communist organizers. There you go. It sounds like a great business That's model. A good core, core, a core brand, brand proposition, proposition, shall yes. we say? Yes, indeed. Mm. So, get that bread. Hell yeah. Uh, how shall I say? They, <laughs> one of his body parts they do, do call the English hammer. Yeah. Just throwing that out I mean, there. you know how Trotskyists are about wedding vows and. And stuff like that. We um, learned a lot about that yeah. uh, watching this show it's about Trotsky. Yeah. <laughs> let's, get, let's get into the yeah. show. Let's let's get into into just the keep doing that voice throughout. No, nothing about John Clegg's English Hammer. <laughs> wink, wink. Oh. Don't worry, John Clegg doesn't listen. No, he would never. <laughs> we, hey, tried, we tried to get him on the show, but he has class dysmorphia. He says that he's too posh. Yeah, he doesn't like how posh his voice sounds on uh, sorry. recordings. I'm sorry, like, maybe dude. you shouldn't be so posh then. I don't know what to tell you. Ghost of a ghost. <laughs> uh, big ups to John Clegg and the communization current, which we will be talking about in the future on the anti Yeah, no thanks to him. So um, how do we come up with the idea of subjecting ourselves to eight episodes of the Russian Trotsky show on Netflix? Why did we, how did we end up in this spot? I believe we found out about it from our friend Alex Gendler, <gasps> who, by the way, is here with us in the studio. Oh my. Hi, uh, Alex. You, did you do this? Uh, yeah, I think uh, there there was drinks involved as usual, mm. and we were at, we were at some party, and I was I was actually shocked that you guys hadn't heard of it because mm. it uh you know it made the rounds the trailer made the rounds like as like look at this ridiculous thing, uh but yeah for a while it was only available in Russian um and it wasn't subtitled or anything um I I that's and I actually watched it back then all the episodes are on YouTube because Russians don't care about piracy. Um, <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> yeah. And then, they got bigger fish to fry. <laughs> right. And um, I mean, just the first time I saw the trailer, it was like, oh, my God, they're doing like Game of Thrones style Trotsky. <laughs> it is that. Uh, yeah. Game of Thrones, Hell communism, yeah. uh, revisionism. For folks who don't remember, um, Alex Gendler is a friend and comrade. Uh, he lives in the New York City area. We won't give too many details. But you are, in fact, are you not a, a prolific poster? That's yeah, that my greatest accomplishment. Okay. Um, <laughs> but you're also yeah. a Russian speaker, and uh, yeah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. So I mean, I'm from uh, I'm originally from the Soviet Union, from uh, Kharkiv uh, in Ukraine, which was like um, it's even now, but especially at the time, it was mostly Russian speaking. So um, yeah, so and you yet be... you are a communist. That's uh, pretty impressive. Very. Uh, Yes, uh, very disappointing to uh, my. Uh, you know. <laughs> Your family doesn't right. think very highly of that. Uh, well, yeah, we choice. did kind of, you know, like leave the uh, leave the communist country. Um, but right before it collapsed, in fact, we we got out in uh, October '91. Um, A special dispensation. Uh... Well, it was that uh, there. It was that uh, Lautenberg Amendment, I believe, that um, they sort of ad hoc passed to give uh, any like 
certain minority groups from the Soviet Union, something like equivalent to refugee status. Um, and because this is important moving forward, because uh, you are of Jewish, uh, yeah, abstract, yeah, abstractions, right? That's that uh, that's why we qualified for that. Um, whereas a lot of like you know ethnic Russians or ethnic Ukrainians, who a lot of them also wanted to get out, but yeah, I think that's important because uh, I'm the only goy in the room right now. But we are going to be <laughs> confronting this Trotsky show, which is about as rife with anti-Semitism, I think, as uh, anything I've seen, uh, except maybe Richard Spencer videos. Yeah. <laughs> recently. Oh yeah, I would say so. So you. You, you knew about this because you're a Russian speaker. Um, are also Ukrainian? You speak uh, both? Or? Uh, uh, unfortunately, not. It was only Russian. I mean, I can understand Ukrainian like about 85%. But but you but you yeah. did have early access to this horrible piling ste- uh, pile of steaming crap that is this <laughs> uh, revisionist anti-Semitic Trotsky show before any Oh, yes. Um, in fact, I think my mom actually watched it before I did. <laughs> really? <laughs> but, wow. Yeah. What did she think? Uh, I mean... Her opinions are actually pretty similar to mine, but uh, That's yeah, a good mom. <laughs> Did she appreciate all of the bodice ripping scenes? Oh, definitely. <laughs> Did yeah. she find them problematic? Uh, she actually wasn't surprised by that because apparently, uh, like I didn't even know this, but apparently Trotsky had uh, quite the reputation for that. Wow. Um, like Trotsky, yeah. Trotsky fucked. And fucked. He literally yeah. rips multiple bodices so in yeah. the show. Bodices. I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, we'll we'll get to the bodice ripping, but even somebody of like your mother's generation would know of Trotsky as a sex god. Yeah, apparently wow. this no is uh, you know you learn new things every day. <laughs> so to introduce the show, it it uh, was part of like the 100th anniversary. Mm celebration or commemoration of the Bolshevik Revolution it appeared on state TV. Do you know about this TV channel? Yeah, channel one. Channel one. Yeah, and yeah. the director was some sort of... Ernst? Uh, uh, something Ernst? Some sort of Putinist propagandist, mm. more or less. Well, you basically have to be to be the director of Channel One. Yeah. Like that's, that's so, well, th- as Trotsky said on the show, he who controls the media <laughs> controls the people's minds. <laughs> as right. he did the happy merchant thing <laughs> with his hands. <laughs> and would you say that the show represents the Putinist state ideology in one way or another? I, it's, it, I mean, it's good that you bring up that it was the. Um, you know, we're not even sure what to call it. Was it a commemoration? Was it a commemoration of the centennial of was the revolution, a or a celebration, or a problemization? Because um, Russia itself didn't really know how to deal with it, mm. and I mean, it's like the that uh, sort of problem with how to approach the uh, this legacy of the revolution uh, sort of is sort of a microcosm of like Putinism in general, because it's trying to thread the needle between um, like owning. Uh, Soviet history while repudiating, you know, any kind of revolutionary communist communist idea. And this show is like a very good example of uh, precisely how Putin, like the Putin ideology tries to do that. Um, That's interesting because in in research, I I looked up um, this director, this Alex Ernst is his name. Um, And here's a direct quote from a a New Yorker article that was actually about... um, him, this uh, director and writer of the Trotsky film, also was the master of ceremonies and the director and producer of the Sochi Olympics uh, celebration of Russian history and Russian culture when they had the Olympics there uh, several years back. So here's a direct quote. As the Putin years took shape, Ernst, that's the writer, director, and the channel, that's channel one, he controlled, became central instruments for building a new national culture. The goal was to break from the past without discrediting it to rally a country that had been left defeated and unsure by the upheavals of the 90s. Ernst worked to liberate Soviet music and imagery from their communist context. 
helping to craft a new state culture that linked Russia to its history without all the baggage. Right. So is that mm-hmm. a fair sort of assessment? And, That's what um, I've got another uh, commentary on the series from Clarine, which is an Argentinian newspaper. Mm. And it's actually Alexandre Sakalo and Constantine Ernst mm. are the uh, directors or writers of the series. Um, they say the message of the series is, quote, you should not force people to go out into the street and that, quote, every revolution means bloodshed, a message that corresponds to the official line of the Kremlin, reluctant to mark the centenary of the October Revolution for its animosity towards popular movements. Quote, the state does not participate in the commemoration of the centenary. Just look, says Nikita Petrov of the Memorial Association. The Kremlin's message is that all revolutions are bad, above all, those financed Mm, abroad. Like color revolutions, right. In the series Trotsky, the West plays an essential role for the revolution, proposing to finance the revolutionaries. Mm. So it's kind of like when uh, Americans try and make commemorative things about, I don't know, Martin Luther King or Mm. the Black Panthers without talking about their anti-capitalist ideology. Right. Um, And... But specifically, I think there's a reason that the series um, focuses, like that they made a series about Trotsky, because um, it's there's a sort of complicated attitude um, that, you know, the recent poll came out that shows like something like 60% of Russians miss the Soviet Union, right? right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the highest. It's, uh, it, that, I mean, uh, it was always, uh, nostalgia for the Soviet Union was always high, but this is apparently, they take that poll every couple of years, and this is the highest uh, that it's been since the fall of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union itself, wow. uh, which also tracks to like, you know, the sort of like economic situation in the country. They had giant pension protests yes. a couple months ago, right? Right. Um, and, you know, like the... Like the country's like hollowing out. It's basically you have Moscow and Petersburg, and you know out in like Siberia and other provinces, like people don't have like indoor toilets. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of that there. But um, the thing is that Lenin, even um, even for sort of Putin's um, regime, you know, like there's a certain reverence towards figures towards Lenin and increasingly Stalin. Um, you know because you know the old old people still went to school like learning to revere mm-hmm. lenin as you know like the father of the country um you didn't even have to be that old right if you're in your 50s or 60s yeah i mean i your... i mean i went to soviet school right. and yeah we you know we like you know by then no one really like believed in communism but it's still like lenin you know like the statues of lenin were very like very special it was like you know that's like where you you that's where you went to like the may day marches with your grandparents uh, and Stalin yeah. seems to also have been uh, I don't even know if I want to say rehabilitated because I don't know if he was ever considered really a bad guy he kind of was after Khrushchev's like secret speech but yeah sorry yeah I mean I think a lot of people probably did consider him to be bad but um he seems to go slot in pretty well with or at least certain aspects of him seem to slot in pretty well with Putin's authoritarianism right definitely and I, and tell me if I'm wrong too but like the the czarist you know especially Folks like um, Peter the Great, you know, these great modernizers of Russia are also revered. So Stalin, in, a, in some sort of way, kind of represents this thread that ties Putin back to like the, the great days of the Roman, uh, the, I'm sorry, the Russian Empire under, you know, Catherine and Peter the Great, right? These strong yeah. centralized. Well, and, and he was, you know, Stalin was the, uh, the official story. Stalin was the one who defeated the Nazis. Right. So, like, right, like he fought back, he 
led the Russians, the great Russian state, in you know defending it from its enemy invaders from the west. So, which is legitimately true. Would you say he made Russia great again? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's uh, that's the that's the line. That's kind of um, yeah. There's definitely like an active um, rehabilitation of Stalin. So my point is that you know. You are, like Stalin is being rehabilitated as like you know the great leader who defeated the Nazis. Lenin, uh, you know, even though he was a revolutionary, he's still kind of untouchable because he like the iconography of Lenin is so it was such a huge part of the Soviet Union that you can't really attack that directly without um, undermining the sort of like uh, continue uh, historical continuity patriotism that Putin's trying to build. So who do you blame? Trotsky, the Jew. Like that's for them. That's the perfect way to sort of like take all the bad things about the revolution and uh, blame it on this figure. How who... convenient. Yeah. Right. Uh, I, th- I think we kind of disagree a bit about like the level of anti-Semitism in the show. I think the show certainly has anti-Semitic elements, but it's a bit more nuanced. Um, and, you know, like there's like a kind of back and forth, uh, you know, like people are constantly calling Trotsky a Jew. Right. And, and worse. Um, and and the K-word. And he's trying to kind of push back and say, like, look, I'm I don't want there to be Russians anymore. I don't want there to be Jews anymore. Right. And he's he's against like bourgeois decadence and cosmopolitanism. Oh, yeah. The there's, cocaine party. Is, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. That. There's, but there's <laughs> there's it's not this isn't simply like a uh, passion play where where Trotsky is Judas. It's a lot more complicated yeah, than that. It is. No, he has his heroic aspects. But the show overall shows him as like leading and carrying out the revolution by himself to the point where actually he's calling the Kronstadt sailors uh, in October 1917 and saying, okay, take that place. Now take that place. Call me in half an hour. And it's literally just him in a room directing the entire thing. And then like later on, Lenin's like, did you just do the revolution? (laughs) Yeah, which is really interesting because it portrays, uh, I I definitely agree with you. There's a tension there because in sort of trying to blame Trotsky for the revolution, they actually end up making him look badass and decisive. And Lenin actually comes off as kind of like ineffectual yeah. and, and uh, yeah, he agrees yeah. to be his puppet at one point in right. time. Right. Um, so, right. Like at the beginning, he's like, Trotsky, you're going to be my puppet. He even does that thing that they do in like mafia movies where he like holds him over the edge oh, of God, a yeah, building. That was ridiculous. Like, so like, join the Bolshevik party. Be my Jean, puppet. God damn it. And Trotsky's like, no puppet, no puppet. <laughs> and then the tables have turned a few scenes later. And yeah. then Lenin agrees to be Trotsky's puppet. Checkmate. Right. So, <laughs> I feel like Lenin could have done that though. He was kind he liked to fight. Uh, he was uh, a scrapper, but I, I, I've never read any uh, reputable source that said he pulled a Jean Claude Van Damme on Trotsky on a, on a Parisian uh, roof. I mean, they, it's yeah, funny. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if this is a tangent, but like that, there are many ridiculous things about this show. Uh, so it's like kind of hard to pick out if you're not like super educated in Russian history what's uh, what's real and what's not real. But two of the ridiculous things that actually turned out to be real mm-hmm. are Trotsky's uh, leather daddy outfit, mm-hmm. which he oh, wears oh, yeah. during all of the war it's scenes, really real. which includes a leather leather shirt, leather <laughs> pants, leather trench coat. It's like uh, black on the outside, red on the inside, <laughs> leather gloves, like a leather hat, obviously. Basically our, our show art for this episode. And I was like, yeah. that's ridiculous. Apparently... That was real. That was really real. Also, when Frida Kahlo compares having sex with Trotsky to having sex with God. Really yep. real. Also, that... apparently, a real thing. Really real. Um, Alex, one more thing before we dive deeper into this thing. 
it was my my guess because I don't know. Um, since a lot of the history of Trotsky and the revolution was erased, you know, even in Soviet times, right? Um, except for people like your mother, perhaps, or, or folks who like held on to this sort of revolutionary tradition. Would it be fair to say that for the average Russian person in nineteen, I'm sorry, uh, two thousand eighteen, this is like their first examination or understanding of who Trotsky was. This yeah. is kind of setting the tone for how to understand him. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely correct. Uh, the thing is, like, you, you know, during Soviet times, it wasn't even, it it wasn't quite as much as, like, you know, like in 1984, like, like the figure of Emmanuel Goldstein right. is thought to be based on Trotsky, so they show his face, like, all the time and denounce him as a traitor. That wasn't actually, in, in Soviet times, it was more like they just, like, we just don't talk about him. And, and what about... Uh, yeah. What about Marx? Because they don't mention Marx at all in this show. Right. That's that's a really funny part. There's right. One. There's a picture of Marx once, and I think it's Lenin's office. Uh, yeah. But that it's yeah. There's no. It goes Marx entirely whatsoever. unmentioned in a show about the Russian Revolution. Well, because you don't want to. You know, you can't take up the actual. You can't actually engage with the the show. The last thing the show wants to do is actually engage with the ideas of communism right. and like the theory. So, and that's you know, which is why all the personal splits, right? Like the. Uh, the conflict between Lenin and Trotsky and Trotsky and Stalin uh, and even like the whole motivation is presented as this like petty per- psychological personal yeah, yeah, yeah personal and, grudges and it's right. about sex too like right. yeah. yeah uh also uh Trotsky's beef with Stalin is not portrayed as anything ideological or even political really it's just that Stalin really wants to be his friend and Trotsky at least three times totally snubs Stalin's offers of friendship and that is why he yeah. ends up getting an ice pick to the head. Yeah, not it's like of uh, anything else. it's like uh, Eminem's uh, stand, like uh, like Stalin's just Trotsky's <laughs> biggest fan watching him after the speech and wants to shake his hand, and Trotsky just walks by him That's and uh, yeah, oh fake friends. That was yeah. a really funny scene. It was really funny actually. This is a great series, by the way. I yeah, know it's like anti-Semitic oh, and lying. And it, it, was enter- it was entertaining much. as hell. Can I, can I, Come I, for the revisionism, stay for the anti-Semitism <laughs> and the hot sex. Uh, let me just say, oh yeah, dude, the sex scenes are uh, Frida sex scenes, like yeah, that mag- anarchist, magnificent. that yeah. anarchist sex, that, yeah. that was great. Let me just say, as somebody who I, I think like Alex and Andy and, and Jamie uh, know a decent amount about this history, I found the most grueling, difficult part of watching this eight-part series was that. I was constantly like racking my brain for like what actually happened at this period of time. And like, it was, it was brutal to watch because it was like trying to do two things at once. Like there's so much revisionism in it. And so much, like you said, of like psych psychologizing or personalizing into petty grudges, like real theoretical differences. And then even just basic like history of how the revolution happened, how the Bolsheviks organized, what the splits were about, you know, and even like Trotsky in, in 1940 in, in Mexico, there was so much that was revisionist that like, I'm, I'm going back to the sources in my head as I'm watching it. Like, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. And then trying to think, like, wait, what actually happened again? What actually happened again? Right. It was really Trotsky gaslighting. didn't basically force his assassin to kill oh him with an God. ice pick by oh. beating him with his well, cane? Let's, let's, right. They portrayed it as self-defense. Like, yeah. <laughs> like Trotsky goaded him into. Who he right. has I mean, been the, telling this whole story Yeah, that's too, the framing device that he just invites yeah. this guy in. And so the, the, the weirdest part is that unlike in, unlike in reality – the uh, it's presented that Trotsky actually knows that the guy right. is a Stalinist agent and still invites him into his home continually. I guess to that tell him was story. sort of a myth about the assassination about that Mercador? some that was out there for a while. Yeah. Now we know that that's not true, but oh, really? that's based on something that was out there. I oh, think. I see. They, did, they didn't subtle, just invite that way, for the show. Calling and, him 
uh, what one who mercs would be in Spanish, right? Yeah, his yeah. assassin's name was uh, Ramon Mercador. El like Mercador. El, LK Merc. <laughs> and, uh, he who mercs. <laughs> also, they, they show the first assassination attempt against him, uh, which was... Um, they don't they don't say this in the show, but it's really funny because it's just a bunch of guys uh, from the Communist Party um, firing a machine gun into his compounds, and they couldn't hit him because they were all painters. Because the Communist Party in Mexico at that point, <laughs> they were all like muralists, <laughs> so they, they just even though they had like ten guns, they just couldn't kill Trotsky. Bad but aim. then he runs yeah. in the show. He runs out into the street and uh, is like, "Ah, you couldn't kill me, you bastards." And he's like, ah, if they want to kill me, they can just kill me. So, like, the whole show, he's just tempting fate yeah. and, like, bringing everything upon himself. Yeah, Which because I... he knows he's bad and he did bad yeah. things and he deserves to die, <laughs> right, according right, right. to his ghost dad. 100%. And this, I think. <laughs> oh, God, the scene with the ghost dad. There's, oh. so, there's ghost dad, there's ghost kids, there's ghost generals. Like, it's every like the ghost episode... of revolution's past. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But, like, Andy was really per- uh, perceptive when we were all watching this again and we were going back with the notes. There's a, a central piece of revisionism, which I think is really important to the story that and he just told uh, in this and just also about how Russian viewers are meant to understand Trotsky and unlike real life in this show I think in the second uh, episode Trotsky goes to Brussels is it Brussels or Paris I forget where he is he goes and he Vienna I'm sorry he goes to Vienna and he actually meets Freud IRL and like he actually has like a, a confrontation with Freud about like what sex means and Freud's like sex drives the world and this that and the other thing and like kind of it, it, I think Andy, you were saying right. It's almost like it like synthesizes this sort of like Freudian death drive slash like sexual obsession into the story of Trotsky, or like Trotsky himself was almost like a like used Freud's theories. For... Well, Trotsky did like Freud. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't read any of his like writing on Freud, but in in the show, it's shown as like he's about to go and he's about to like go own Freud. Yeah, and it's then kind he's of like, cute, wait, right? you know what? You're right. And he just decides that he wants to become this, like, sexualized alpha figure of the Russian Revolution. And he starts to understand that the revolution is just, uh, it's just, like, seduce, not seducing, but just, like, basically raping uh, a woman. gray area right. in this yeah, show. He uses that language all the time. Yeah, revolution yeah, like, is a woman, fertilize yeah, her. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Inseminate her. just an unruly woman, <laughs> and, then, and all he has to do is, like, grab her, <laughs> somehow penetrate her without taking any of his clothes off. I don't know if Trotsky was a never-nude in real life, but in this, he definitely There are is. dozens of us. And then uh, he just gets her to do stuff, and, and that's, that's a it. He's Leather Daddy Trotsky. And that's so, how revs happen. you got to have it. Scheming Jew in leather. Yeah, coming back from Vienna after seeing Freud, he's he has sex with Natalia for the first time mm. in a kind of rapey scenario. Yep. And the next scene, Natalia's like, no, that was kind of rude what you did to me. <laughs> and then he just is like, this is what needs to be done to Russia. Yes. Because, you know, oh, you didn't think you wanted it, but you did want right. it, and now you're happy. That really happened. And now right. we're together. Yep. And so the what underpins this entire show is this sexual neurosis. Yep. That is um, completely reactionary. And the, I think, you know, I'll get into this more later, but the flaw of Trotsky's reasoning is that he thinks that there can be this, like, internationalist sexuality mm. uh, that basically equates to polyamory in this mm. way. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. And Which it, happens in the show. And it can't be done because he's just a cuck. And <laughs> if he wasn't a cuck like Stalin, he'd be Wait, good. But it has to be, like, P of V, right? It has to conform to these, like, very Putin ideas of like heteromasculinity because in right. an early scene 
he goes to some kind of Paris soiree and he's like, soiree, what's that? And there's like, there's a gay guy there. There's like a, yeah. a little person of color. It was just like, out, like this the bourgeois decadence party. <laughs> and he's Drinking like, champagne. And he's like, oh no, this will not do. So, so to set the scene for folks, it might actually be wa- worth watching this one scene. So he goes to this like decadent bourgeois party. They're drinking champagne. Everyone's dressed like with their, you know, tits hanging out. There's a gay guy. The best part is that, as Jamie said, there is literally a little person with a silver platter covered in at least an ounce of cocaine just walking from person to person as they're blowing giant fucking rails off of this thing. It looks like It looks like a lit yeah, party. And Trotsky, at one point, he meets the gay guy who, of course, is like very flamboyant, has like a little pencil mustache, and he goes to shake uh, Trotsky's hand, and Trotsky's like, you know, kind of a little off-put by the guy, and then the guy like holds Trotsky's hand for like a little longer than he should, and Trotsky's like, gay! And he like, <laughs> he, like, like pulls his hand away from the guy. And then Trotsky almost, he has like a seizure almost. Like, yeah. it's so, such bourgeois decadence that he just like loses his mind. The room starts to spin. It does that weird like angle thing. He does like that in, a lot of times like, throughout yeah. the show. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like that, that 13 monkeys sort of like, right. uh, you know. Someone's they, face turns into a skull. Right. I and, never thought <laughs> that I could not like it when a skull appears in a TV show. Well, this is what I was going to say again to what Andy's saying with the Freud thing is that like there's the sex drive, but then I think crucial too and why I think Freud's an important part of understanding the show is that there's also the Freudian death drive. And Mm -hmm. I think because you know, if you're an educated viewer of the show, that Trotsky is going to be assassinated, you know, and he talks about it throughout the entire thing. Dude, you just spoiled it. Death drive. You you just spoiled it. Sorry, guy. Anyone does not know about history, stop listening to the show right now. If you haven't heard any ice pick jokes uh, about Trotskyists before, stop (laughs) listening to the show right now. But yeah, I think that that's also part of it too, right? Is that that Trotsky's like this conflicted, psychologically fucked up figure that has this death drive like knows mercador is going to murk him but like he keeps like going down that path because he's got this sort of freudian uh, i don't know and he knows what he did he knows he's bad he's got the guilt you know that's that's a real thing that jews have but uh he has it a lot in this show catholics do too he's not like a good he's not a good traditional jew like his dad like his ghost yeah yeah. and he's haunted by that cosmopolitan fucking angry confused you right right so the scene with his dad i don't know if this actually came through in the in the subtitle translation but you know he hallucinates at the end of one episode he hallucinates his dad like sitting across from the dinner table like basically telling him how disappointed he is in his son uh you know and just uh he was like i built things i was a farmer you just want to destroy everything yeah and uh and you know like for turning his sort of like turning his back on his jewish heritage and that's that that's throughout is presented as like you know Trotsky, it's almost like trying to imply that Trotsky masterminded the whole revolution because he's trying to, like, escape his Jewishness Mm. and doesn't want to be seen as a Jew. But, like, you know, everyone keeps reminding him, like, you know, even if you succeed, the Russian people will always see you as a Jew. And so Trotsky's dad appears to tell him that that you'll never get away from being a Jew. The Russians will never see you as one of their own. And then he mocks him by reciting this, like, um, sort of, like, children's rhyme about, like, this. And he it's actually in... um, in like a Ukrainian dialect when he starts reciting so that. So this is why we had to have you around. Right. What's up with that dialect? You said it was like... You- so it's it's Sorzhik, which is like... Um- which is like what a lot of uh, sort of like peasants and merchants. Um, it was. It's kind of like a mix of like Russian and Ukrainian, which are already like pretty related languages in the first place. Um, and it was often associated with like uh, Jews from Odessa mm-hmm. and um, sort of like merchants and and peasants as well. 
Um, so, and you know, Trotsky just goes crazy hearing that, like, you know, what I, what presumably was his childhood dialect that kind of marks him as like right. this, uh, yeah. As un- unable to escape his Jewish right. heritage, which, which continues through the entire thing. He's let, like Bernie Well, cause Sanders. the show won't let him escape. No, it. I know. <laughs> He's got, uh, everyone hates him for being uh, godless, but they also hate him for being a Jew. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, it was true that, uh, Trotsky's Jewishness was, he was concerned with it, and I, I think as one, was the whole party. One thing was that too. was yeah. accurate in the show is that Trotsky declined leadership right. because mm-hmm. he didn't want to give ammunition to the anti-Semitic enemies of the party. Yes. Now the show portrays that as he was the leader of the party, <laughs> right? And he decided to give it to Lenin, so he wasn't perceived as being. And the so leader. Lenin was his puppet, essentially. He yeah. makes Lenin the the Jewish Trotsky like makes figurehead. Lenin his figurehead, essentially. Was right? Lenin? actually that anti-semitic in real life because uh, no no he wasn't it seems like a, a lot of their disagreements have been somewhat misrepresented on this show well they definitely did not like each other until 1917 it wasn't because right. he was a jew right no, it was theoretical differences yeah, it might have so. had a hand in it but it was Maybe. mostly yeah, uh, mostly theoretical right. uh and but then they are portrayed as continuing to hate each other after Trotsky becomes a Bolshevik. And that's not true. And basically that summer, Trotsky and Lenin, it's the bromance of the century. They, they lived yeah. in the same, they lived right across the, the hall from yeah, each other like and shared a bathroom. they were totally Aww. fused ideologically. Yeah. Like they had these two separate political positions coming into it and they just totally fused. Right, but again, you can't have the show portraying that because, right. you know, you, you can't associate Lenin with the, the bad stuff that the show's portraying about Trotsky. And let's, um, uh, and while we're tackling the, the, the Jewish thing, I think um, Parvis, right, Alexandra Parvis, Mm. is a central, central character in this. And Andy's right that the anti-Semitism is complicated because it does, there is some truth, obviously some truth. We know what pogroms are, right? Uh, Trotsky's father was pogromed in this like brutal scene. Yeah, where so they, they show a peasant, scene of peasant. a pogrom and that's clearly shown to be a bad thing. So it's not just, it's not yeah. purely anti-Semitic. It's showing like mob violence against Jews to be br- brutal and wrong. Right. But then they are sort of forwarding these... Uh, structural anti-Semitic, anti-globalist mm-hmm. yes. ideas that these Jews are trying to undermine the Russian nation. This yeah, and if the Russian nation, if that if that type of nationalism is centralized, it makes a little bit more sense, at least, that Jews could represent both this like shadowy global finance capital on the one hand and some sort of nebulous socialism on the other oh right? but that because was a, that they, was a common thing like they both threaten the russian nation state yeah. judeo-bolshevism um yeah. the, the it was a common um i think that that was a common refrain in germany and in a lot of uh europe in the early 20th century that like the jews are both the bankers and the revolutionaries and they're trying to like undermine it wasn't just in russia like this was uh, that was, I think, that was Hitler's line. Uh, well, the, in Germany at first also. Glance, the that doesn't that, make any sense. The protocols yeah. of the elders of Zion was a uh, forgery, a hoax that comes out of um, reactionary forces. I think in the Secret Service under the Tsar, yeah, uh, that was created in order to portray the Jews as yes, like contradictory superhuman sex gods. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like the the thing that's the thing that's postone. Uh, we've talked about this is, is really good at this shit. Like. Modern anti-Semitism is is different from like traditional like medieval and before them like hatred of Jews. Right. In that it is this sort of bizarre, sort of contradictory yet unified thing where Jews are both like physically weak and um, but also perverted. But also and and perverted. But they're also like all powerful at, at the same time and and all scheming. So like somehow 
you know, they, there's these there's two different aspects to it where uh, they're weak, but they also control everything. Right. It's this bizarre sort of thing. And so they can be both the finance capitalists who are undermining the German or the Russian nation or the United States or whatever it is, but also be this like virus, you know, that's inside of your country. That's like, you know, eating it away from the inside and destroying traditional family values. And they're right. also like highly sexual, but they're also cucks. Right, right, right. right, right. right. Which exactly. is also a thing that happens. Yeah. On Unnatural, the show. But, uh, you know, but like, right. importantly, I don't think that Trotsky's uh, socialism, Marxism, whatever you want to call it, is ever really portrayed as being sincere on this show. And I think that's really important because then they yeah. might have to actually engage with the substance of it. I think that's true. I, uh, think... No, I disagree. I think he's very sincere. He's a like what I think the strength of the show is, is that he is dedicated to revolution in such a way that he's willing to uh, give up his family um, enter into a situation in which he knows a lot of people will die. He understands there's going to be a civil war. He understands there's going to be a lot of bloodshed. And he's willing to do that because that's what he thinks history requires. I but feel he's like portrayed... it's more of a Walter White thing, though, where he's mainly doing it for his own ego because yeah, he see, wants to I, be God. That's, I think that's how you square these two circles. Is I think Jamie's right. I think that you do see all those characteristics in him, and he is painted sympathetically, certainly in like you know the Civil War period in the in the show. But I do think, like Jamie said, like his desire for international proletarian revolution comes from. Not it's not that he doesn't believe in it. In fact, people always uh, they're accusing him, the Stalinist, uh, you know, that he's talking with the entire time saying, like, you don't believe in truth. You believe in this idea, this idea of proletarian revolution. You're just stuck with this idea, blah, blah, blah. Like even his, uh, I don't know, like theoretical uh, like understanding and desire for revolution is seen as this sort of character flaw, this sort of hang up that leads him like farther and farther down this path of giving up all the good things and, and like human things in life to the point where literally at one point in time like one of the episodes five or six he's in Frida Kahlo's house and he yells I am a demon and his eyes turn black (laughs) very subtle there very very fucking subtle and he's subtle and he gets one of those death uh, Dia de Muerte uh, death masks on him so I I think it's I think you're right like there is I think there is something like heroic about him you see in that show but it's because he becomes so cruel and he becomes so I guess I should have said like it's not it's not portrayed that he's doing it in good faith Right. Because he is committed to this idea of Marxism or they don't call it that on the show. He's right. Yeah. Very notably of (laughs) revolution. But that in and of itself is painted as a bad faith thing. Yeah. Um, And yeah, I think this is why um, like this comes back to sort of like the what the the ideological needle that the show is trying to thread and why it kind of like still falls apart under its own contradictions. Um, I think probably the most important scene is that the scene where he meets uh, his jailer when he like early on when he's a young idealistic uh, revolutionary and he's jailed by this like stern very like like it's it's so obvious that the show like that guy is speaking with the show's voice because he's this like stern uh, mustachioed old guard. white russian um like you know authority, uh, and, and, and he's named and lev lev bronstein which yes. is uh, lenin's uh, sorry trotsky's original name is in prison but what's the name of the jailer the jailer's name is trotsky there you go. and um and afterwards trotsky adopts his name uh which is, that actually is apparently that's actually apparently true that is uh, true but yeah. my understanding is that Trotsky did that out of a sense of irony and sarcasm yeah. but in the show it's actually meant to to portray the like this cruel 
I don't know, Warren of this um, this prison who talks to, to Lenin about, how, or I'm sorry, to Trotsky about how like brutal and cruel the world is and how people need to be controlled, that Trotsky is trying to, in a way, become this Yeah, I mean, that, it's, it's portrayed as a pivotal moment in his ideology. Because basically, yeah, uh, Lev Bronstein is at first portrayed as this like nebbish, uh, very like neurotic, uh, like idealistic revolutionary who's afraid of violence. And, and then... You know, he has this like mafia type, the Sopranos type moment where the the warden, uh, you know, invites him to play a game of chess, uh, which is also like that's a very chess is like a very important thing in Russian culture. Um, right. That's uh, true. Yeah. And so uh, I have heard Kasparov and all that. Yeah. Uh, so and over the chess game, he basically like, you know, like transforms his whole worldview is like he tells him that you know all your ideals about revolution and the people wanting justice like no the people don't want justice they want they need power and they want Order. to be controlled right and you can see that trotsky is just his mind is blown and then he basically yeah he becomes yeah, and the guy checkmates him and like yeah, he does. Yeah. Yes, so he, he must does. be right right and, and to right. add even more to that too i if i if i'm correct right before when trotsky is relating this story to the stalinist who ends up killing him the merc the mercador he says and to him something you know this thing and then this thing happened to me that made me who i was that opened my eyes and it is that scene right yeah so how that plays into the sort of ideology because if you try to like map this out on like one of those i don't know glenn beck charts it's basically like you know um like trotsky was bad because he you know he caused this revolution revolution caused and uh you know he was like ruthless and he he killed all the all these poor peasants who were just trying to defend their like you know their their church their crosses from crosses. being used as fuel for trying yeah. fuck train right so <laughs> that scene yeah that was uh but so like you know and uh so all that stuff is bad but Wait, but it's also, but also he's kind of badass and good because people do need ruthless, uh, you know, authoritarian order. And so, like, the show tries to portray him as bad, but it can't, it can't help actually portraying him as badass and kind of like what Russia needed. Mm. Um, It kind of goes back to like, it's, it's kind of how Brecht said that you can't actually make an anti-war film because just the spectacle of Mm -hmm. uh, watching like the, the violence almost kind of like you you can't help but approve of it yeah so it's kind of the same thing so i wanted to ask you about parvis because the way that parvis is portrayed on this show he's just kind of this uh shadowy financier with connections to germany who's sort of the ehrlich bachman of bolshevism (laughs) and he's got this like Rep, this this commie incubator <laughs> kind of crossed with a reality show where all these guys and girls come and live it's it's sort of like europe's next top communist <laughs> crossed with the real world you know trotsky comes in like i'm not here to make friends i'm here to overthrow the bourgeoisie and it's it, it's very strange and i was wondering is that is that how it really went down did he kind of pull trotsky aside and say like come and live in my incubator stick with me kid i'll make you a star <laughs> Get on the casting couch. Uh, Parvis, Parvis, Parvis. Parvis is a very controversial figure for good reason. Um, well after it's portrayed in the show, which is around 1902, 1903, around like the Brussels Bolshevik Conference, uh, Parvis did become an asset of the German intelligence uh, during the First World War. He also became a black market arms dealer who helped to arm the uh at a Turk, Young Turks yeah. uh, uprising, and and become a millionaire. Yeah, did pretty well. He did very too, well. Yeah. But what this show does is it takes Parvis, that Parvis of like 12, 13 years later, puts it back into time 
as like literally uh, if people don't know what the happy merchant meme is it is like the highly anti-semitic drawing of like a hook-nosed jew rubbing his hands together like right. that is literally parvis in this right i'm pretty uh, sure he does the hand uh, rub he, at least so, once so so the one scene the most blatantly anti-semitic scene is it's a convoluted plot but like the revolution like is about to pop off this is in russia like way later on parvis is controlling trotsky he's like making him america uh, europe's next top communist right to overthrow Lenin, blah 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 but like parvis wants him to start this premature revolution and he wants him to make the speech so that all these workers could get killed and then folks whatever but Trotsky's standing and like Parvis, the Jewish German, um, you know, rich financier is standing behind the statue, like putting words into Trotsky's mouth and being like, start the revolution, start the revolution, like rubbing his hands together. And when Trotsky sees that he's being set up, he doesn't do it. And like Parvis, the Jew, the international Jew, just like just goes. He like skulks into the background when Trotsky won't do what he wants. Like it is like it's not it's it's anti-Semitic for a reason because like you guys were everyone's been saying right like in the Russia of today if you're going to portray Trotsky he has to not just be a Jew but also be controlled by like outside forces right, right? Yeah. they remind you like. At least twice an episode, too, that Trotsky is a Jew. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And Parvis, too, right? Every time, yeah. you know, like... Uh, so the, the the Parvis thing, I think, is like... Like Andy was saying, that there was real anti-Semitism. Like, the Parvis um, background in this story, the way that they re- revise that history, shows that, like, there is still a real anti-Semitism that exists within this show because Trotsky, again, and the, and the Bolsheviks in general are just sort of the puppets of, like, international Jewry. And the theory right. that... Parvis was just accepting German money to uh, finance the Bolshevik Revolution. Was it was accurate to the extent that he was doing that in like the 1910s, like during World War One? Uh, he was basically a German agent, and he was trying to get Lenin in on it, and Lenin refused. Lenin was like disgusted by the idea of uh, accepting uh, of like um, having his revolution for the sake of Germany winning the war. And um, and then Parvis kind of went totally rightward after that, right? He was part of the SPD under Abert, which likes to press Rosa Luxemburg, who had been his friend previous to that. Like he is res- helps, he's responsible for uh, the Free Corp and the uh, Social Democratic Party of Germany, like suppressing the Spartacus uprising and killing his friends. But in the show, he's taking this money from 1903 yes. onward. I don't yeah. know if that's accurate no, or not. It's but. not. It's I, I I went back and I read and. Is entirely not accurate at all, but you understand why it's being done, though, right? Yeah. Um, and here's a quote from Trotsky from his. Uh, okay, it's it's. Uh, I'm not sure where the quote's from, but it's from a book called Lenin and the Bolsheviks by Adam B. Ulam, where he says there is always something mad and unreliable about Parvis. In addition to all his other ambitions, this revolutionary was torn by an amazing desire to get rich. <laughs> um, he stole a bunch of money from the Bolsheviks and Maxim Gorky and set up fundraisers for the party. Much of the party put him at arm's length after that, including Lenin. Uh, he grew rich as a war profiteer, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, the idea that Parvis was a scheming scumbag who was out to for his own betterment more than the revolution is not controversial no. to the Bolsheviks, but it's portrayed here as like the secret mover behind the party. Yes, and, right. and one more thing, too, is that um, for all things that Parvis became, like he was a dedicated um, Marxist theorist and 
activist too, you know, it, before he becomes this scumbag. Like the idea of permanent revolution, which Trotsky actually works with Parvis to like flesh out from like a throwaway line in Marx. Um, that's Parvis and Trotsky working together. And some people who are the most generous towards Parvis say that he was working for German intelligence because he was a revolutionary defeatist for Russia. So he wanted the Russian czar to fall in the First World War. He was helping German intelligence to help the Bolsheviks out. I mean, that goes a little bit far. But like this idea, again, that he was just this purely the schemer and not an actual like revolutionary yeah. at a certain point is just completely bankrupt. I mean, there was a popular this was like sort of the failure part of the failure of internationalism during the First World war because there was a you know the social democratic party which uh, you know unlike modern social democracy was actually like a a marxist like a real socialist party with a left and a right wing right um but there was a major current within um like within the socialist movement that saw russia as the most reactionary regime and you know that like the prospect the idea was that the prospect for socialism would be improved with a german victory over russia yeah um that's how the that's how the spd like um justified war credits right against both france and and russia okay Um, because it seems okay i'm the one who knows the least about russian history here that's very clear it's pretty pretty brutal history uh, probably best that you don't know too much it seems a little confusing at first glance uh if indeed the russian revolutions were if their ambitions were to have a chain reaction of revolutions and abolish the nation state and establish a global socialist order why germany would be funding that for the purpose of advancing their feud with russia uh there's not really any there i mean you're getting you're getting into like very convoluted historical questions but the question of like whether russia could be this revolutionary spark or not is a lot of what divides you know trotsky from lenin from um uh, martov the whole conception that the uh, November Revolution that con- uh, creates the uh, Kerensky government, right, and the Constituent uh, Assembly. Are should you in the February Revolution. Sorry, February Revolution. Right. Yeah. Uh, should should be should be a bourgeois revolution was taken for granted by almost every single social democrat Marxist right. within Russia up until a certain point in time. Yeah, up until uh, the July days in Kornilov, basically. Exactly. Right. Because right. um, there was there was the fear became that which pretty well justified uh, that. Like basically, the the bourgeoisie in Russia was not um, even strong enough to carry out to follow through on the bourgeois revolution, and that uh, they were just going to backslide, like uh, backslide into monarchism and um, or, or like wor- empowering uh, people like Kornilov. Right? Yeah, Kornilov. Um, you said, like I was about to say, like the the whites <clears throat> that the Red Army ends up fighting within the, the civil war the whites being the czarists yeah right. amongst others though because they were worse than even czar uh, oh czarists. like uh, straight up fascists wait like, or like unger and sternberg who we could do oh, you guys should do a whole episode on mm-hmm. him he's uh, <laughs> yeah uh was he a, like a proto-fascist unger and sternberg you know he he like he was a white army general who uh got who was like uh, got into this like made this like fanatic mix of uh, Russian Orthodoxy and like uh, Buddhism and declared himself. He actually took over Mongolia briefly and declared himself the reincarnation of Genghis Khan. Whoa! Wow! Um, and, like, oh, I heard about this guy. Yeah, he was and, Dugan before Dugan. Yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> and he, you know, he wanted to like sweep across Eurasia and annihilate both like the capitalists and the Jews and the communists. Uh, so, yeah. So like we we don't have to relitigate the entire like Bolshevik Revolution, <laughs> right. the October Revolution, but like the point is, as James 
Jamie said there was something counterintuitive that like Russia in its backward state could actually put forward a proletarian revolution. And it was correct that the, the bourgeoisie under the cadets, which was the party in the constituent assembly, could not put forward, could not put forth the bourgeois revolution at a certain right. point in time. And this is what kind of forces the proletariat as represented by the Soviet, the Petrograd Soviet, to you know get rid of that constituent assembly of which the Bolsheviks were a huge part. But, but back to the show. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. I, I just no. wanted let's, to like the like if the if the, the white Russians like Kornilov and these people, if they had won, you would have seen like Hitlerism 20 years before it actually yeah. happened. So let's all put that into perspective. But this was know? this is important to the show in the sense that Trotsky always represented this kind of maximalist pull in the sense that even in 1903, his idea of permanent revolution was way more insurrectionary than yes. what the uh, Lenin's uh, wing of the Bolshevik party was proposing. The Lenin had always said that the, the proletariat revolution should put the bourgeoisie in power. Yep. And they were basically trying to uh, get rid of the aristocracy and, and, and modernize Russia to be uh, a modern liberal democracy and have unions um, and then like workers, like a like a party, a workers party mm-hmm. that could fight with right. the Duma. And right. so in April, 1917, Lenin comes back and he delivers his April theses that are just like, let's just do the whole fucking thing. Let's get let's end the war. Get rid of the police. um, Get rid of the provisional government. Give all power to the Soviets. Create communism right fucking now. And everyone thought he was fucking crazy. It was a startling intervention. They thought he had become a Trotskyist. Yeah. right. And then Trotsky arrives three weeks later and he's like, wait, Lenin. Uh, Lenin and I agree now. So, and then the Bolshevik Party just comes under Lenin and Trotsky. Yeah. So, uh, in a sense, the, portraying Trotsky as this historically uh, th- this figure who was like prophetic about the events of 1917, um, that's like a compelling aspect of the narrative of the show. But for him to be like the prime mover and schemer of all of it, that's I mean, yeah. and you also don't need to be prophetic if you're doing the revolution yourself, <laughs> all by yourself. Like, oh yeah, someone's <laughs> gonna create a revolution <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on uh, my birthday, weirdly enough, yeah. <laughs> right. in uh, uh, 1917. Well, and it, it just again, like the way that Andy describes it, I think is is very much you know how the history happened and what everybody should learn about it. But in, that's way deeper and less interesting that like. Lenin and, and Trotsky's position comes closer, like in the course of actual like material events where they can unify and you know uh, theoretically and practically, right? That's way more compelling than like Lenin's a, an asshole anti-Semite and he hung Trotsky off a roof and told him <laughs> be my puppet. But then Trotsky came back and cocked him by saying, "No, now you're my puppet because I'm going to have the revolution two days before you wanted to have it all by myself." So it was a birthday present for me, <laughs> which right. literally happens in the show. Yeah, Trotsky's like, it's my birthday. I'm having a revolution. He doesn't care that his son might be dying yeah. because he's too busy giving himself a birthday present to own Lenin. Yeah. If, if my understanding uh, yes. of the show is correct, that, that, that literally happened. So, in the show. so speaking of cucking, <laughs> I think it's kind of interesting. Um, all the sexual, the, like, there's obviously everything is about sex because Freud is right and uh, he owns Trotsky in mm. the very beginning, but um. What what is also about sex is the actual sex on the show, <laughs> of, which of which there, there is a lot. Is quite a lot. You don't uh, have to wait very long. Yeah. <laughs> Two three sex. minutes. Yeah. It's very Game of Thrones ish in that sense. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he, tr- true to me and Sean's uh, aforementioned desire, he has this uh, communist 
fuck train that he just like fucks all across Europe on. It is a steampunk fuck train is, with a red star on it. It's, it's pretty cool. I'm not going to lie. Um, you know, there are good good things and bad things that we can take from Trotskyism. And I think that is a good thing. Um, I also really appreciate the scene when uh, Trotsky, uh, Frida Kahlo, and Diego Rivera are kind of all sitting around playing grab ass and like la- they're like laughing about how they've all seen her naked and she's like oh haha everyone's seen me naked that's like not even a big deal I'm a hooah uh, she's like oh haha I am just a Mexican whore driving around in my big red quit mobile I have never contributed anything right. positive to society I am not a serious person at all I'm just hot and I look like Selma Hayek and I smoke weed every day she smokes weed every day Yep. And, and Ramon Mercader is so scandalized by uh, yeah. You oh, know, yeah. yeah there's right. a great so, scene when they're all like trying to get him to join their polycule <laughs> and he's like I don't know about all this it's like the the virgin Stalinist versus the Chad <laughs> but of course speaking of Salma Hayek and the movie Frida which is a very good movie there's also a scene where Frida fucks Trotsky uh, so why why is it that Trotsky is just sexualized in every depiction of him? Like, <laughs> but but that that actually you, happened. They did have an affair. But why yeah. is that why, that? why does that have to be in the Trotsky movie? Just because it's so like marketable for. I Who mean, doesn't want to see Trotsky? Yeah, there would be Frida major Kahlo. protests Me. if they left out, uh, you know, the the Trotsky Frida Kahlo sex scene. Come on, that's what everyone and came not to, to see. Be done. <laughs> the Frida in in this series, as opposed to Salma Hayek has even bigger boobs <laughs> than Salma Hayek. I, yeah, I did I, not realize that Frida Kahlo had uh, fake boobs. Yeah, but, I was uh, going to say, uh, apparently, like, the, the Mexican, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, medical community was way advanced when it came to uh, breast implants in the 1930s. Yeah. Well, you know, they're, they're working with Russia. Uh, they cast all Russians for it, so, you know, make of that. What oh, you Frida will. spoke great Russian. They, right? yeah, they yeah. couldn't save yeah. her life with a decent operation, but they could give her very realistic boobs. Double right. Ds, at least. Yeah, it was that was depressing. But uh, she does fuck the Stalinist they, too. They, they have yeah. She she eventually does fuck the Stalinist. Everybody has unquote, breakfast unquote, with Frida. Breakfast right? with Frida. <laughs> we all know what that means. But like, I think it's sort of an interesting. I don't know. Take on the gender dynamics that we're supposed to think are good, right? Because on the one hand, I mean, watching it as myself, I'm like, oh, this is fine. This is all fine. That Stalinist really needs to loosen up. Yeah. But I think it's we're just supposed... a po- it's just a it's a it's a hinge. It's a V, and Trotsky's the hinge within the poly V. What's wrong with that? It's normal. Yeah, as as we will be going over it in detail on our bonus real poly hours. Mm-hmm. But um, I think we're supposed to think that that is bad, maybe. Right. Or yeah. maybe that Trotsky's the man. I don't know. There's this one part where he basically sends this guy to die. Uh, who he thinks had sex with his wife. And I guess he says that it's not because of that, but we're kind of supposed to think that it is because of that. And, you know, viewing it as like the, you know, third wave feminist that I am, I'm like, oh, well, that shows that he's a hypocrite because he wants to fuck around on his wife, but he doesn't want her to do the same thing to him. But Andy had a different take on it that I think makes a whole lot of sense. So the the whole premise of this show is that Trotsky is an alpha cuck. <laughs> uh, he's, he's good because he's an alpha. He led the revolution. He understands people need to be led and ruled. And he fucks a lot, which is good. He fucks whoever he wants, whenever he wants. He's not a player who just fucks um, a lot. He yeah. doesn't care about his illegitimate children and all this stuff. This is all good in, in the eyes of the show. What's bad is that he lets Natalia also fuck whoever Ooh. she wants. 
and he clearly doesn't like it and is clearly uncomfortable with it, but he has these these socialist ideals that make it necessary for people to uh, have sex as much as they want, and he can't... cuckoldry to ensue, right? Make way for winged arrows. So when um, the the stand-in for the Russian people, uh, the real Russian people of the show, the the Kronstadt sailor, what's his name? Um, Markin? His name is James Franco, the (laughs) Russian sailor. Yeah. That's what he looks like. So, and this guy is like, clearly like the the viewer of the show right. because the, he's anti-semitic he's but drunk. he also supports trotsky right. he's drunk yeah he's he he's le- a glad handler he's, he's a kind of a like doofus. he's a kind of a yeah. doofus but he's like also charismatic and yeah, trotsky can't, trotsky just can't he can't he's like oh i just want to be your friend trotsky and trotsky's like yeah we're friends he's just he can't stand this guy and he's fucking his wife and he's supposed to be okay with it but it haunts him mm. and eventually he has him killed I don't think the show ever mentions that, like, he killed all of the Kronstadt sailors <laughs> right, no, right. at one point. Just that one guy. <laughs> he just killed this one guy. Kronstadt was all about, because that guy fucked Trotsky's <laughs> wife. Right. What, if the whole, what if the whole Kronstadt sailors, uh, you know, Soviet had had sex with his wife? You know, that, that might also be the possible. reason why, uh, you know, 1921 happened. Yeah, you weren't there. You don't know. <laughs> so the point of the show is that it's good to be powerful. It's good to control women. It's good to, you know, uh, be, like sexual and uh, have as much sex as you want but you have to keep everything in check and also um it can't be internationalist you know you can't let the people be free to that extent you can't let your woman sleep with whoever she wants you it's good to be alpha but it's not good to be a cuck Mm -hmm. if you're a cuck you're going to be doomed and the guy that cucks you will uh has the right to kill you with an ice axe Needless to say, Colin Tai is not a character on this show. They don't even want Russians to know that Colin Tai existed, right? right? Listen, all you internationalists out there, um, if you learn anything from this episode, don't be a cuck. Become a nationalist. It's way better. Alex, you got any last thoughts on uh, the Trotsky show? No, it's... Uh... I think we covered a. Did you enjoy it, or did you I, find it as as taxing as uh, I did to watch? Uh, you know, like some, like just I enjoyed like the most over the top ridiculous scenes were like were enjoyable in themselves, but really like uh, sort of the honest critical appraisal, like it meanders way too much. Yes, there's all these like. There's all these like pseudo philosophical like they're trying to make like every line like this like pseudo philosophical like you know statement about like life or power and like it, it's mostly like non sequiturs um, and that's not a translation issue like even in Russian it's just like it's, <laughs> the dialogue is like really stilted yeah. um, but you know I mean well here's but what... on the other hand the yeah. anachronistic garage rock. Really hits oh, the spot. Oh, right. <laughs> they do the peaky. Did you notice that, Alex? They do the peaky blinders thing. If anyone is, is a fan of peaky blinders, which we certainly are, like in peaky blinders, they have slow motion, like w- these guys walking in Manchester, the, like, and like the, the 1920s yeah. to the kills and the white stripes and shit. They do the same fucking thing, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, there's like garage rock plays, just like incongruously yeah. within the Russian Revolution. Should have had more uh, Red Army Choir. <laughs> um, <laughs> they did do Alice Bonacanas in the International a lot. I did appreciate right. that. But, but on the topic of uh, gender politics, uh, I don't think it will surprise anyone that this show does not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> and on top of all the revisionism and the anti-Semitism, that would make this show a problematic fave for me. All right. Mm. Thank you, um, Putin and Channel One, uh, for the wonderful Trotsky series. Just, sorry, one, one takeaway that I had from the show. I didn't really understand the depths of the sexual neuroses of the reactionary until I saw this show. Um, and, you know, Paging Dr. Marcuse. <laughs> I think 
that this, you know, the they they bring up this Trotsky quote that, um, you know, after the revolution, there'll be no more Russians and there'll be more, no more Jews. I think a, a way to kind of combat the logic of this show is that after the revolution, there'll be no more alphas and there'll be no more cocks. <laughs> a man could be a uh, pitcher in the morning. A, ver- a, a virgin in a, the afternoon. A catcher in the <laughs> afternoon. A chad in the evening. A hinge in the <laughs> evening. And uh, maybe at midnight, he'll suck someone's hog. <laughs> and that's the beauty of uh, one big polycule. <laughs> Marxism, Leninism, Kolontaiism. I'm here for it, folks. Suck Summon Hogs at Midnight with you. That's maybe our t shirt slogan. Hashtag. Help. Oh!